You're listening to the New York Public Library podcast. I'm Aiden Flax Clark. There are some pictures that actually aren't worth a thousand words, and then there are some that are worth a whole lot more. Take the picture from the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, the one of the American athletes John Carlos and Tommy Smith receiving their medals for the 200 meter sprint. Heads bowed, fists raised, wearing black leather gloves. It's one of the most iconic images of the 1960s. It's easy for an image like that to turn into a relic or a symbol of its time. And to be fair, it is that. It reminds you not just of the Olympics, but of 1968, of the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, of riots, of the Vietnam War that was undergoing its most deadly year, and of student protests around the world. That image is also one moment, frozen in time, within the much longer lives of the three people in it. And most of us, after looking at a picture like that, will probably find ourselves wondering what stories there are from before that image and after. And once in a while, you're lucky enough to hear the stories explained by the actual people in the photo, which was the case last week when Dr. John Carlos was at the library. Marking the 50th anniversary of that moment on the Olympic podium, Carlos talked with Dave Zirin, who's a sports editor at The Nation and co-author of his memoir, The John Carlos Story. Yeah, John and I have been, uh, traveled together for years, and before uh, he comes on, he usually likes it if I give a little bit of background as he puts it, so, quote, he d- I don't have to do all the heavy lifting. So that's my job right now, to make the load a little bit lighter for when we get on stage, and we can get to other topics, because the topics are not just about 1968, but they're about the present. And it reminds me of another quote from Mark Twain, uh, who once said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And if you look at everything that's happening today with athletes and activism, there's just a whole lot of rhyming going on with 1968. And when we talk about 1968, I want to ask this question first. How many people are aware of the moment? They've seen the photo. Tommy Smith, John Carlos raising their fists to the heavens. Well, what I'm here to say before John comes on is that we should all be aware that it was not just a moment, but a movement a movement called the Olympic Project for Human Rights, a movement that was trying to organize all black athletes and all white sympathizers on the U.S. Olympic team to actually boycott the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, to boycott those games unless certain demands were met, demands that I would argue have proven over time to be demands well worth fighting for, demands like disavowing Rhodesia and South Africa and apartheid countries from competing in the Olympics. Demands like actually hiring black coaches for U.S. track and field. Demands like having Avery Brundage, the fascist sympathizing head of the International Olympic Committee, have to step down. These were the demands that they were trying to organize for. These were the demands they believed in. Now, this boycott fell through for reasons that we will discuss, but John Carlos and Tommy Smith insisted on making sure that the resistance that they were a part of was recognized. And that's why, before that 200-meter race in October of 1968, they brought gloves. They also brought beads, if you look at the picture, that they're wearing on the medal stand to, to, to symbolize the history of lynching in the United States. They also weren't wearing shoes on that medal stand as a symbol of poverty in the United States. They also were up there with a man named Peter Norman, the Australian Olympian, who was wearing a button himself that said Olympic Project for Human Rights. 
They wanted to make sure that all of these symbols were represented on the Olympic stand. Of course, they had to do something first. What did they have to do? They had to win. It would have been pretty silly if they'd come in like eighth. You know, and they were like, oh man, we brought these gloves and beads. <laughs> Now we've got nothing to do with them. And that's where you get to something really remarkable that I want us to remember on this 50th anniversary. I don't know about people here, but I think any of us who played youth sports knows that far too often it's not about playing or having fun, but it's about win, win, win. As if win is the only, winning is the only goal. Well, if you look at this race and you look at John Carlos's face and John Carlos's eyes, you can see that winning was not the only goal. He breaks out and he is in the lead in this race and he's constantly looking backwards. Like, where's Tommy? Where's Tommy? Where's Tommy? Because it doesn't work unless they're both on that medal stand. And that's an amazing thing if you think about it. There, he is playing political games, if you will, with one one hundredths of seconds to make sure that they can do the demonstration that they planned. And one of the funniest things to me personally, knowing John, is that he keeps looking for Tommy and then when Tommy actually crosses the line, you see John smile, but then over his left shoulder, Peter Norman nicks him at the very bit and he goes like, yay, oh, thank <laughs> but, but that was okay because they knew that Peter Norman was a comrade of theirs in this struggle, so that made it all the sweeter, the three of them up there on that metal stand. Now before they went up on that metal stand, a lot of people don't know this, but Tommy turned to John and he said, What if somebody tries to shoot us when we raise our fists? And that's not such a wild question if you think about 1968 and the fact that King and Robert Kennedy had already been killed and the fact that hundreds of Mexican students and workers had been killed before the start of those games. And he looked at John and he said, what if somebody tries to shoot us? And John said, well, you know we're trained to listen for the gun. And we're also fast, so we'll figure it out. <laughs> so they go up on that metal stand, they raise their fists as the anthem is playing. And as John said, I'll never forget he said this to me, he said, it got so quiet in there you could have heard a frog pee on cotton. <laughs> and it, it was a moment. And after that moment came the backlash, which we will discuss tonight. After that moment came a lot of pain. But as John himself said, One thing he has above all else is no regrets. As he says to, said to me once, I'll never forget this, he said, David, and by the way, he's one of only like three people who can call me David instead of Dave or, without my skin crawling, but he says, he goes, David, do you know who has regrets? The people who were there in 1968 and chose to do nothing. They're the people who have regrets, not me. And it's for reasons like that. And the reasons are also that he is still a fighter 50 years later, that it is my absolute honor to bring onto the stage Dr. John Carlos. John, great to see you. It's good to be alive. Good to be here, Dave. It's always good to be with you. Wow, 50 years. Yeah, man, 50 years, you know, it seemed like it was yesterday. You know, I mean, so many people come up over the 50 years. Every day, someone would talk about that statement. And, uh, It's just good to be alive and, 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 and to see so many people that have open minds now that can think for themselves opposed to letting headlines think for them. Yeah. See, I got to ask, before we get to the present, I got to ask you the question that you've been asked for 50 years. So on the one hand, forgive me, but on the other hand, I can't imagine a more pertinent question to start this off, and that's the one-word question of why. Why did you make that decision to take your medal stand moment, your point of glory, and choose to make that political statement? 
Oh, I think, you know, if you look at it and take 100% and say 99.9% of individuals that have stardom, whether it be football or entertainment or what so forth, they focus on themselves. For some reason, God put a mechanism in me when I was a child to not be concerned about me, but be concerned about others that was maybe less fortunate than me. You know, I, I realized early in my life that a thing called Heron came in and broke up a lot of families. I was blessed that my mother and father were still there to have a wholesome life for me as a kid with a full rounded family. But with so many individual kids that didn't have that, I was more concerned about them than I was about myself. And, and I think I've grown with that throughout my life. Think about how to pull up the guy that's forgotten. Mm. And, 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 and that was right here, Harlem, New York City. Oh Where man. You know, anytime I come back here, it's like I'm energized. I feel like you're, you're 45, called my man Rocket Man. I feel like Rocket Man every time I come home. <laughs> Welcome home, sir. So this is all 50 years ago, and of course, also 50 years ago, we're going to hear a lot next month is about the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And a lot of people don't know that Dr. Martin Luther King supported the Olympic athletes who wanted to boycott, that this was something that he believed in strongly and was going to devote time to, and that you met with Dr. King shortly before his trip to Memphis, where he was killed. Can you speak about your meeting with Dr. Actually, King? Actually, not too far from here. Wow. It was a hotel across the street from the old garden called the Americana Hotel. I had just come back from uh, East Texas State, where it was real bad on the social climate. And I came back to New York, I was young, I was married, I had a daughter, and it was just such a tragic situation there, and I felt like the best thing for me to do was roll up and come back home. And I, this particular day, I was in the house helping my mother paint the kitchen, and the phone rang, and my mother said, Johnny, it's uh, Professor Edwards would like to speak with you. And I said, oh, sure. Mm. And I got on the phone, and he told me, he said, John, it's a meeting taking place, and some people asked me to invite you to the meeting. Now, I went down to the hotel. Mind you, now, I grew up in New York as a child, like most kids. I came downtown, but I never went in any of the hotels. I think two times in my life I went for any major hotel. One time it was raining. <laughs> I ran in the hotel, and it was surprising when I ran in the hotel. I used to see this guy dress up in a three-piece suit every day, shoes shine, had his attache case, and I ran this hotel and I find that this guy was the elevator operator. So I was impressed that he was that sharp to go to work every day. But then when I went to the Americana Hotel, I went in and I was in awe, you know, because they had the big chandeliers and beautiful mirrors and pictures. I mean, all because my mother was a perfectionist. She liked nice things. And I'm thinking, you know, being a thug in New York, oh, I could snatch that chandelier. I could take those pictures and give for my mom. And then I snapped out of it. And I went to the desk and I asked them for SCLC. Now, I didn't know what SCLC was. Later, I find that it was Southern Christian Leadership. And I went there and he told me to go to a certain room and I knocked on the door. And it was a guy that came to the door and I knew this man. And I'm saying it's him, but it can't be him. But it's gotta be him. No, it ain't him. And the, the, the picture that I'm seeing in my mind was one of the luminaries that used to run around with Dr. King on TV that my parents and my brothers and sisters used to look at. And this guy turned out to be Andrew Young. Now, why I said it's him but it's not him is because I thought Andrew Young was like six feet four. 
And when I saw him, he was like four feet six. <laughs> so like it really threw me for a spin. And uh, I recall thinking to myself, saying, my God, the guy must have been shooting this picture from his back. He must have been laying down shooting this picture. <laughs> but Andrew Young was very nice, he was very cordial, you know, very warm and inviting me in. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at all these people walking around that I recognize on TV. And you know, being a young kid, you know, you're saying to yourself, man, what am I doing here? I'm in the wrong place. What am I doing? I don't need to be here. And they would call you, would you like cake? Would you like a sandwich? Would you like a drink? This, that, and the other. And about 20 minutes later, 25 minutes, the door opened and Dr. King walked out. I mean, like, like God walked into the room. My lip fell in my lap, and the first thing I thought about was my mom. I said, Mama, need to be here. You need to be a rock in my pocket or a bug on my lapel. You need to be here, Mama, because my mother always thought that Dr. King was someone that God sent here to this earth to try and help us. And here I'm in the room with him. And we sat there, and he realized that something wasn't right, and he started cracking jokes. And, and it kind of like relaxed everybody. I know he relaxed me. And I thought to myself, say, God, this guy could be a stand-up comic. <laughs> and then he went into the dialogue in terms of him wanting to come out and support the Olympic boycott. And he told Professor Edwards that he thought that he was doing a fine job. He didn't want to take control. He wanted to be second in command because he thought that Harry was doing a fantastic job. But through the conversation, he made a statement that they sent a letter to him and they told him in this letter that they had a bullet with his name on it, and he wouldn't have to wait long. And that rang out in my mind more than anything else that was going on in the meeting. And after the meeting was over, he asked, was there any questions? Well, I had a couple of questions. I said, yes, Dr. King, I have two questions. First question is, have you ever played any sports? And he came back and said, I can't shoot pool. <laughs> he said, why do you ask? I said, well, Dr. King, if you don't play any sports, why would you get involved in the Olympic boycott? And he said something that was so profound. He said, John, he said, just imagine you're getting in a rowboat and you row out to the center of a lake, big lake. He said, you take the oars and you bring them in, you pick up a rock and you sit there until everything is still and serene. He said, then you take that rock and throw it overboard. What happens? And I said, it creates vibrations. He said, yes, it creates waves. He said, that rock, is that Olympic boycott. He said, when that rock hit the lake, he said, everything in that lake knew something was amiss. He said, everything on the shores of that lake knew something was amiss. He said, and the greatest thing is that you're making a statement and you don't have to kill, maim, or injure anyone to make them understand that we need to come together to solve this issue. I mean, I was like blown away. I was like a pebble from my little basket. I forgot that I had a second question. He had to remind me. <laughs> John, I thought you said you had two questions. And I said, oh, yeah. And the second question was, Dr. King, you said that they sent a letter and they have a bullet with your name on it and you wouldn't have to wait long. Well, back in the, you know, that time in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, we used to have them big black horn rim glasses. And they were shades. They didn't dilate like they do now. And I recall pulling my glasses down on my nose to get the glass out the way because I want to look in his eyes with my eyes, nothing in between. And you can pretty much demise as to what I was looking for. I'm looking for fear. A man tells me that they sent a letter to tell him they're gonna kill him 
and you won't have to wait long. I'm looking for a little shakiness. But when I looked in the man's eyes, all I saw was unadulterated love for humanity. That was a great charge for me. I said, well, Dr. King, why would you go back? He said, well, John, I have to go back and stand for those that won't stand for themselves. And John, I have to go back and stand for those that can't stand for themselves. And it dawned on me that what he said there gave me a full circle in terms of who I was in my life, because as long as I can remember, neon or grasshopper, that's what I did. Fought for those that wouldn't fight for themselves and fight for those that couldn't fight for themselves. So it was a revelation. When I went to Mexico City, you can rest assured that that demonstration came, evolved in my brain from that meeting that I had with Dr. King. Mm. Wow. Now, you mentioned the boycott. That's why Dr. King was there to speak with you. Uh, people can go online and search this. There, Dr. King did a press conference where he spoke with, with, with his uh, typical eloquence in support of an Olympic boycott. And I, I have to ask you the question, why do you think the boycott fell through? Well, it fell through for a number of reasons. But the main reasons were, you know, we were all young. We were all in our 20s. I think the oldest guy that made that team was a United States military man by the name of Mel Pender. He was like 31, 32 years old. He came back and made the team for the second time. He made 64, made 68. But basically, we're all in our 20s, 22, 23, 21. And these guys and girls, they trained all their lives. We've been taught from the time we were knee high to that grasshopper once again, go for the gold, go to the Olympics, represent your country, be who you are. So these guys trained all their lives with this in their mind. And then here we come up and say, hey guys, we want you to disregard the Olympic games. We want you to think about this, back up. That's a hard pill to swallow for anyone, regardless of what your age is. But our thought, our essence was to make sure that we researched everything that we were challenging the system about. We researched it to the point where we could lay it out on the table and told everybody, said, look, man, here it is on the table. We're going to go through it. We went through it. Most of them were sympathetic and say, man, I feel what you feel. I understand what you're saying. But when it came down to say, I'm going to give up that opportunity for the gold medal, they wanted to go. We did not feel that we ever had the right to tell them that, man, you're just going to have to pass up the games. You decide you want to go, that's your right, and we could do no, uh, no less than honor your right. So they decided they'd take a vote. They voted to go. When they voted to go, right away, my brain said, well, they can go, I'm staying home. But I know it's a God in the sky. See, I know it's a God in the sky because he communicates with me. And he came to me and he said, John, you can stay home. He said, but if you stay home, someone's going to go in your spot because America is the greatest country on the planet in track and field in that era. You can stay home, but someone's going to win your spot. Will they represent you the way you need to be represented on the victory stand? When I had that run through my brain, First thing that I re reflected on back to when I was a kid when I had that vision. But God gave me this vision of me in a form. I didn't know what a stadium was. 
I didn't know what the podium was. I'm standing on a box. No one's out there in this box but me. Everybody out there, like I said, it was yippee ki yay and they're just excited. I don't know what they're excited about. It took me a minute to realize they must be excited about something that I did because I was the only one out there. And I'm right-handed. I always said, man, I knocked a lot of guys out over the years with this right hand. But I could not understand in this vision how I was waving with my left hand. And when it dawned on me that they was applauding for me, you know, as a little kid, you want to wave as high as you can get your hand up. And I went to wave my hand and put it up that high. And when you see that picture, that portrait, you'll see my hand is pretty much like that. It never extended. And it didn't extend in that vision island because instantaneously I was like struck us because all the applause immediately turned to anger and venom and cussing, spitting, telling me where to go. Like I was like struck as a kid. I went to dinner that night, must have been six, seven hours later. My father could still see that something that happened. He said, Johnny, what's the matter? I said, Daddy, I was in a movie. He said, you was in a movie? I said, yeah, Daddy. He said, what happened? I said, everybody was happy about something I did, and then they got mad at me and started throwing things at me, calling me names. And I'll never forget my father bringing me into his rib cage at the table, and he said, son, nobody's going to bother you. My job is to love you, protect you, feed you, house you, and see that you get a good education. Nobody's going to bother you. And he leaned over my head, and he said to my mother, he said, Vi, it looked like God's got something special in mind for this kid. We're going to have to wait and see. Fifteen years later, and I'm almost thinking with 15 years later to the day that I was on that victory stand, and the exact same thing that happened in that vision as a child happened that day on the victory stand. Why did God choose me for this? I don't know. But I feel good that he did choose me. And I'm I'm a Gemini. But I like to add at the same time that Mr. Smith is a Gemini. I like to add also that Mr. Norman is a Gemini. So all you Geminis in the audience, you got true grit. Dig a little deeper. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, you raise your fist on the metal stand, you bow your head, and it electrifies and inspires a generation of young people who are fighting for black liberation, who are fighting against the war in Vietnam, but it also provoked an incredible amount of rage from mainstream America. Now, before I ask you about the backlash, I'm just curious about your thoughts about why you think it made people so uncomfortable, so angry. I mean, you're fighting for things that are absolutely worth fighting for. You're making a peaceful stand, and the response is rage. And I guess I'm asking you that with an eye on today, too, because you see people protesting before NFL games. They're protesting for things that we should all be for, like racial equality, the end to police violence, and yet it provokes so much irrational anger. Why do you think it made people so angry in 1968? Well, first of all, you know, we love this country. We have the anthem, Star Spangled Banner. We can all get wrapped up in patriotism. But when you sit back and you think about the patriotism and you think about what took place at that particular time, there's certain people that was educated and had knowledge. They were the silent factor. They understood. They said, we're not going to throw no bones because we understand. But then they had 
bigots and racists that controlled a large industry. They controlled the media. They controlled the radio industry. They controlled the Olympic Committee. They controlled the United States government. They weren't concerned about minorities or had a concern about minority, minorities' emotions or feelings or concerns about not just merely their lives, but the lives of their offsprings that's to come after them. So this is why they was enraged because we, so to speak, pull the drapes down and let the world see who we are as a whole. It was a myth, it was a propaganda scam that they put out to say that we all loving in America. So when we went to the Olympic Games as American athletes and making a statement like that, it was revealed to the world that man, maybe things are not as glorified in America as we thought all these years. And why did I feel like I had the right to go to the victory stand and make that statement? Because any individual that represents America, whether you be a boxer, whether you be a basketball player, track and field athlete, you are an ambassador for this country. You go out, you spread goodwill, good cheer, the whole nine yards. But then at the same time, like the soldiers that went to the first, second of the Korean War came home, as being that ambassador during wartime, but when you came home, you came back to a sinister society. So my attitude was, if nothing else, if I'm here, if God gave me the graces to be the athlete that I was and took me to the top of the heap, how could I be there and see so many kids that grew up in my neighborhood that didn't succeed because of the drug epidemic that they put on them? Or how could I be that way when so many kids couldn't go to school to exploit, to exploit the, the talents and, and the gifts that God gave them to possibly solve heart disease or solve cancer or to start impotency or balding or anything that would never reach fruition merely because of racism? I look for adults to solve that issue. I look for business people to solve that issue. I look for the government to solve that issue. And everybody seemed they sat on their fanny. When one individual got up, they'd take him out. I was raised as a little kid when I saw when they killed the chief, the rest of the Indians scattered, didn't know what to do. When Tarzan came in, the rest of the natives didn't know what to do. And the same thing applied when they had government agencies. When they took Martin Luther King out, we still stumbling about that. They took Malcolm X out, we still stumbling about that. So it's not about Dr. King having all the knowledge or Malcolm X having all the knowledge or Harriet Tubman having the knowledge. It's about we all having the knowledge. When you sit back and think about 68, people say, well, you know, Peter Norman was on that victory stand. Well, why wasn't Peter Norman recognized for 40 years out of that 50 years? They put Tommy Smith up there, John Carlos up there, they never put Peter Norman up there. Well, my mind works, so it made me think. I said, wow, Frederick Douglass, he's a black historian. I said, but aside from Frederick Douglass, to the right of him was a guy called John Brown. Why did they erase John Brown from that history? Then you sit back and you think about when Peter Norman came in, and then you think about this young, terrific individual, Mr. Kaepernick. He comes out. And he makes a statement. But he didn't make the statement by himself. 
They had black athletes that got on the knee or put their fist to the sky, but yet and still they had white athletes that got it on the knee as well and put an arm on him to let him know, I support you. They whitewashed those individuals out of history as well. Why? Because they don't want white society to realize that you can have moral character and you can have good standing in terms of being about what's right in society opposed to what's wrong rather than just sitting there being still and not doing anything. It's for everyone to step up and make change. That's why I applaud these young students today to say, hey man, enough is enough. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Hey, 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 Dave, you know, I, I know, I know you get mad at me, my wife do too. Hey guys, listen, I always say this and some people want to beat up me up, my wife get mad at me, but listen, applause, I appreciate it. But I don't, really, I don't really like applause, okay? And let me tell you why. I'm not here to do a song. I ain't going to do no dancing. You understand? I'm here to make a connection. God tell me all I need, need to connect with is one person in this room. Tell me that my left ear every time. But before I could digest that, he shoots over to my right ear. He said, John, but you're doing so much better. And before I could stick my chest out with pride that I'm making communication with people, he shoots back to my left ear. And he says, John, remember, your mission is to reach one person. I'm not here for applause. My ego don't get off like that. I just want y'all to understand what I'm saying. And if you gather it, take it home and give it to somebody else. I remember I learned that from a kid in school one day, a little girl, she had a rough time. And I said to her, I said, baby girl, I love you. And she looked at me, she said, I don't want your love, Mr. Collins. I don't want your love. I looked at her and I told her, I said, well, baby girl, I done gave you the love and you can't give it back to me. All you can do is digest it, understand it, feel what it's about, and give it to somebody else. So I'm trying to make that move to you. Share some love with you, share a little bit that's in me, and hope that you would take it and give it to somebody else. Now, once again, we have security in here as well. So if you insist upon applauding, <laughs> we will walk you out. <laughs> now, you mentioned talking to a, a young girl, a young student. Folks might not know that, that John was a, a guidance counselor in California public schools for about 20 years. And, but before that time, I know it was very rough when you came back from the Olympics, that there were some rough times. I know it's not the most fun thing to talk about, but I think it's really important for folks to know the price that's paid when, when athletes do use that hyper-exalted platform to speak out for the people. And I'm hoping you can speak about what was it like when you came back from the Olympics? How did it impact you and how did it impact your family? You know, my father raised my brother and I, you know, we're the men of the family and we're the captain of the ship. You're the breadwinner. So we raised under this theory that you're supposed to be the, the leader. I've done all my life do what I can do to make sure that my wife, my kids are comfortable, living good, eating good, and so forth like that. So I always had a tendency when I had a job to stick a little stash money away, don't tell nobody about it, it's there. I went to Mexico City, it was a shiny day, it was a beautiful day. Colors, pageantry, dubs flying everywhere. And when I came home, it was lightning and thunder, cloudy day, no smiles, a lot of hatred. Out of viciousness. Jobs that I had just dissipated, was no more jobs. The little money that I had stashed, 
start to dissipate all the money going out, no money coming in. As a young individual, you begin to realize very early in the game, a lack of money brings a lot of friction into a household. You will find that you will be arguing about the most insignificant things, merely because you're trying to figure out how you're going to feed the kids. My biggest thing is, how am I going to get money to pay this mortgage? You know, I sat back, I thought about all these things and did the best I could. I remember days when I had would go in and wake my kids up and tell them, say, go in your dresser drawer and get your belongings and pull, fold them up and put them up against the wall. And then I would drag the dress out into the hall with a claw nail hammer and busting the hammer up on the, on the furniture. My wife would look at me like I lost my mind. But it was, I never had money to pay my electric bill. So no electricity, there's no lights. No lights, no heat in the winter. So my thing was survival. So I chopped up the furniture. My attitude to my wife was, don't worry about that. We'll get furniture another day. The name of the game right now is for us to survive, make sure our kids don't catch pneumonia. So I would chop up the furniture, throw it in the fireplace, and tell my kids, come sleep around the fireplace. But then it got to the point where it got so bad, my wife decided one day, I can't take no more. And she took her life. She took her life. It hurt me so bad that I would lose my, my life, my wife, my the love of my life from high school. And then at the same time, while you're dealing with that, you have to deal with the fact that you got two kids. And you have to explain to them why mommy left. Why did mommy leave? What happened? And all that time, for 40 plus years, I always kept my kids in school. Teachers dealt with them when they found their last name was Carlos and they would deal with them. I wouldn't tell my kids what was going on. I would go and deal with the principal. I would go and deal with that teacher. I have to beg, borrow, and steal for if I had 31 days in the month, it was a blessing because God gave me an extra day just to get some rest. Because nobody gave me no job. I had to go out and steal. I had to go out and beg. I had to go out and deal with dope dealers that I know and, 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 and tell them, say, man, throw me some of that money just so I could feed my kid. All of those that might have got a day in the sun based on the fact that two young and, 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 and a third person from the other side of the world, white individual Peter Norman, come in and lend support. Nobody thought, hey, man, these guys got kids. Let's send them 50 cents just so their kids could get a meal or so their kids could get some milk or so their kids could have something to wear to school. Nobody sent anything. People began to walk away that you thought were your friends. Then you got to sit there and you got to digest in your mind, are they walking away because they don't have no love for me or because they don't like me or because I did something wrong? All sorts of things is running through your mind when everybody's going against you and they swimming downstream and you steady swimming upstream and they telling you all the time, you're going the wrong way. You should have never did what you did. And then you have to digest to yourself, are they leaving because they really don't like me? This is my main man. We came to the thing together. Is, is he leaving because he don't have no love for me? And then it dawns on you after a while that they're not leaving you because they don't have love for you or because they don't like you. They're leaving for you because they have fear of reprisal. The same fear that they had 
by stepping away was the same fear that those individuals had about making a statement when we said, let's step back a day from this boycott. These are things that we had to absorb and sit back and, and try and wait and see. But I knew, first of all, when I got off that victory stand in 1968, October, I felt like I'm emancipated. I didn't know about slavery that deep, but I knew what emancipation was that day when I got down. And the first thing the reporter stuck, what do you think you accomplished? I said, obviously I accomplished something because you never came and asked me that before. Yeah. So something's changed, okay? <laughs> so in terms of the pain, you know, like my wife took her life and, and I told a guy, I said to him, I said, man, my wife took her life. As much as I love my wife, my wife would have had to take her life a thousand times because I would never change what I did that day and I would do it tomorrow if it was necessary because someone has to make a sacrifice. And let me say, you know, I grew up in these streets here from Harlem to the Bronx, Coney Island, the whole nine, Rockaway, everywhere. All this city was my city. And I remember times when I came through as a little kid, they said, Johnny Carlos. First they said, Johnny Carlos is crazy. And I had to figure out that I'm crazy because I'm doing things they'd never seen before, so I had to be crazy to do them. But then the crazy title went away. And then they gave this title, John Carlos, the troublemaker. Right here in this library, right here, if you go down to the archives, you'll see a newspaper say, John Carlos, our hero, broke the world record for the 200 meters. Our own. 30 days later, when I put my fist in the sky, I say, John Carlos, troublemaker, a neighborhood bum. And then I looked at that word from troublemaker, and I looked at it from every angle, every after you look at it from so many angles, perspectives, I began to see images. The images that I saw, the first image I saw was a little skinny dude had a sheet wrapped around him in glasses. I didn't even know his name until I looked down and said, Gandhi, troublemaker. Then I looked some more and I saw another guy from, say, the march across this bridge in Selma, Alabama. I looked down and I looked at him and I said, wow, Martin Luther King. Troublemaker. I saw this little skinny woman sitting on the bus. He looked down and said, Rosa Parks, troublemaker. And I thought to myself when I saw Rosa Parks, they said, man, I can imagine as little and as frail as this woman was, what fear she must have felt to step up and say, I'm not going to the back of the bus. She's seen what they've done in terms of the lynchings and the tar and feathering and so forth for male figures. What do you think she thought when she was going to make that statement, I'm not going to the back of the bus today? But they claimed her as a troublemaker too. And then I go on down and I look and they say, here's the God almighty, religious, Jesus Christ. And when I looked down and saw his name, they said troublemaker also. So when you hear that word troublemaker, when people say you're a troublemaker for what you're doing is right, rest assured, trust yourself that you're in damn good company. Don't ever let them trick you with that by calling you a troublemaker. Speaking of troublemakers, there are a lot of athletes today being called troublemakers because they're using that political space of the anthem to say something about racial inequality, about police violence, how does it feel for you, finally, 
50 years later to see this new generation of athletes take up the struggle? How does it feel to see them pay tribute to you? How does it feel? Like I've interviewed athletes and I've asked them the question, do you know the story of John Carlos? And one of them said to me, well, I do now. Now that I've started protesting, I've learned that I stand on the shoulders of giants. I didn't know that before. So how does it feel to see this new generation? Well, you know, I'll always sit back and smile, you know, trying to find my dimples in my cheeks. <laughs> but I smile and I say to myself, I say, you know, when you're young and you're doing certain things, you don't realize what titles you have. And then I got the title back in 1968 as a gardener, a horticulture, someone that tilled the earth and planted seeds and watered it. And now when I see these individuals, not just in the athletic realm, but in the arts, mm -hmm. you see all sorts of individuals stepping up and making statements and saying, I feel the vibe. These individuals are the fruits of my labor. I'm extremely proud that I can say in my young life that I made a difference. You know, the difference didn't come about when I turned 70. The difference came about when I turned 23. And I tell every individual, you don't have to wait until you're 70 years old. And I think these young kids in high school is fighting for, you know, their right to say, hey, enough's enough with the guns. Mm -hmm. it, it just, I'm just so overwhelmed and flattered to no end to see so many individuals stepping up, you know, to see the women stepping up today and say, we stepping up for women's rights and the whole nine yards, LGBT, all of them, they stepping up now. So it's not that they stepping up to say, we want to be a thorn in somebody's shoe. It's they say, we stepping up because we can do better. Mm -hmm. you know, I looked at America, you know, when, when you talked about the uniforms and the shoes and so forth, I didn't have my things zipped up. And I didn't have it zipped up for a purpose. My mother came in from Cuba. My mother used to go and take me and my brother, we used to go to the doctor's abortion office and clean up the afterbirth and all that. I remember I told my mother, I said, Mom, if you can do this, you can be a doctor. My mother went back to school, became a nurse. My father was a shoemaker. And when I sit back and I think about the working people of America, it's almost like the working people or the forgotten people. So when I went up on that victory stand, I didn't want to go up there straight laced, my zipped up and standing at attention, you know, like, you know, everything is fine and forget about those like my mother and my father. I always wanted to represent those individuals that was the working guys, the guy that owned the cleaners, or the guy that had the hardware store, the guy that had the plumbing business, because we did the dirty work to make this country as great as it is. What advice do you have for these young athletes today who are protesting? Because I remember you called me up about a year ago in a state of agitation because you thought they were all going to uh, back down and they were all going to apologize and it looked that way. And, and I remember, never forget what you said to me. You said, like, you've got to tell them that if they back down, they're going to regret it forever. Like, you can't back down in the face of injustice. And I, I would love to know, like, if, say, Colin Kaepernick, Michael Bennett, uh, if they were here right now, what you would say to them as far as uh, the importance of staying strong? Well, I first would tell them, you can't ride the fence. you either with it or you're against it. Now, being a noted athlete, 
and you see various things that take place in your life, in your community, don't think you absorb from that because you've made it as a professional athlete. Your son didn't make it, or your daughter didn't make it, or your mom or your sister didn't make it. Like, let me give you a, for, for instance, there's a young fella that played football for the Dallas Cowboys, and they think he played baseball for the Atlanta Braves, and I'm talking about Deion Sanders. Now, Deion is a very reputable individual. Deion had kids. And he had a son, and his son went to a department store one day and saw some belts that he liked, and the belts cost $350 a piece. So he told the woman, so I want these two belts here, different colors. And the woman looked at him, she said, okay, and she got him down, and he went in his wallet and he pulls out a platinum credit card. Just merely because of the color of his skin, she looks at him and says, oh, no, this is not your credit card. And he's told her, miss, this is my card, that's my name. No, this is not your car. So she pushed the little panic button under the desk. Next thing you know, the store police come. And they take him down, take him down to the police station. And then come to find out that he is Deion Sanders' son. But the bottom line was they said, man, we just didn't think that a black kid would have a platinum credit card. So that was a lesson to Dion, and I saw Dion a couple months back, and I said, man, that's a lesson to you that you need to tell all professional athletes. Because you think that you've made it, you haven't made anything if you haven't stood up for those that don't have the crown on their head to say I'm an NFL athlete or I'm an NBA athlete. Because right now, people are color struck. They're not looking at intelligence or thinking about it, the, 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 the right thought process. They just look at the color of the individual skin. My father told me years ago when I was a little boy, knee high to a grasshopper again, when I heard about the Olympics, and I said, Daddy, did they ever have a black swimmer represent America? Because that was my first love in athletics. No, son, they never had a black swimmer represent America. Daddy, I'm going to be the first. Why? Because I was the best Harlem bathtub swimmer there was. <laughs> but when I started working towards it, one day after about two years, my father looked at me, and you could look at your dad when he got a look in his eyes like, son, I have to talk to you, and it's not a good talk. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, he said, son, I have to talk to you. I said, what's the matter, daddy? He said, you'll never be able to go to the Olympics as a swimmer. And I looked at him like, daddy, what are you talking about? I'm the best in the city. Mm. He said, son, you're never going to go. He said, you can't train. Three times a day they train. He said, where are you going to train? You can't train in the Harlem River. You leave, lose two or three of your friends every summer, which is true. You can't go to Colonial Pool with the blacks going there to cool off. He said, everybody's trying to cool out. He said, you can't go to the ocean. It's too rough. And I'm saying, well, Daddy, we'll join a... He said, oh, and you can't join a club either. What's the matter, Daddy? We can't afford it. Oh, no, Johnny, I can afford it. I said, well, why can't I join? And he did like this. He rubbed on his hand. And I was so young, I thought he had a bug bite or something. He was rubbing but he was actually telling me, merely because of the color of your skin, you can't do so-and-so. I often think to myself, if I had a guy walking down the street with his wife, and his wife fell down dying and he didn't know what to do, and a big black guy walked up and said, man, I know, she need oxygen, go down and give her some oxygen with them big black lips. Would his wife die because of racism? See, that's a question. See, and I had to ask that same question to myself when my daughter came into the world over there in the Bronx. My wife sent me out to get some milk for my daughter, and I go to the store and I see a situation 
three white guys beating up another white guy. They knocked him on the ground, they stomping him and kicking him and so forth. And when I went over there right away, I'm ripping him off and pulling him off and throwing him up against the wall. Now I figure I'm gonna have a rebuttal from them. I didn't hear nothing from them. The guy that was on the ground that they were stomping on looked at me and said, nigga, why don't you mind your own business? That blew me away for a couple of years. I had to think about that. But then I had to realize that it's a thing called ignorance. Ignorance is equal to prejudice and racism. If you can take an ignorant person and sit him down and say, hey man, you can learn if we have some conversation in exchange. You can grow. That might subside your racism, maybe it'll go down because you have a better understanding. But at first when it happened, you know, you sit back and you say, well, maybe I should have been jumping on him too. But I had to think about my little girl. It wasn't about me jumping on him. I had to say, I got to do what I have to do to make this world better for my daughter. Wow, that would have been a terrible day for him if you jumped on him too after he got beat up by three other people. With these big 13s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you speak about ignorance and I have to ask, uh, as we begin to wrap up, because we want to hear from you all here too, is uh, 2018. I mean, there's so much to be inspired about in the world of sports and politics, of people standing up or kneeling down, making their voices heard. Uh, there's also a lot of ignorance out there too, as you well know. And I guess I just want to ask you, on the balance sheet of things, are you feeling hopeful right now or are you feeling distraught? You know, they, you know, we've come a long way and it seemed like we slid back. I'm distraught because not only do we have to deal with the race issue, now we have to deal with the environment. You know, and I'm almost weighing which is more important now, racism or environment. You understand? Because, I mean, we didn't polluted this earth and, 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 and global warming is coming and, and we got 45 in the office talking about there's no global warming and, and, and anybody can get in their car and drive to Florida right now and you'd be wishing your car was the boat because there's so much water coming up into the city. And I'm sitting back and I'm thinking about these things, man, and saying all people really have to do is use common sense. I mean, God gave everybody a right mind to say, man, whether something is good for you or is bad for you. And racism is no way in the world that anyone can convince me that racism is good for anyone. You understand? The same thing, if we sit back and we see this ecology taking place, man, where we're destroying this planet and you feel like they're destroying it, but you sit on your butt and don't say anything about it, but it's just dwelling inside you. That reminds me of when we did the, uh, the, the 99, 99ers versus the 1% down there on Wall Street. And, I, and, I, and we was out there and we was demonstrating. And I'm watching the people walk by. And I'm looking in people's eyes and I can see so many people that want to cross that line but they had the same fear that those individuals had back in Mexico or back before we went to Mexico, that if I crossed the line, my boss might see me on the news. I might lose my job. And they have to realize, man, you was looking for a job when you found that one. Don't worry about the job, worry about what's right. And I seen, for the days that I was there, I seen people walk by and then I just seen courage build where some of them walk across the line and say, hey man, I'm with you today, I'm with you today. 
The question is, how many of you guys are going to cross the line in your lives and stand up for what's right and not be concerned about those that swimming upstream while you swimming downstream? So many people told me over the years, say, man, you're going the wrong way. I remember when they used to break out cameras years ago and want to take a picture of John Carlos, and I see people going that way and people going that way. I want to get out the picture. I don't want to be in the picture. Now we are 50 years later. Somebody break out a picture, take a picture of me, they damn near knock me down to get in the picture. <laughs> Understand? So it just goes to show how things turn. Now those individuals that chose not to do anything, 50 years later, they find out now that they didn't like them no more than they liked me, and they don't have no respect for them today. I told Kaepernick, Mr. Kaepernick, I said, man, I know you want to play football, but my advice to you is to forget about football because you're larger than football now. When football is dead and put away, they will always see the interesting time of Kaepernick with the greats of society. You sit back, you think about this. There was Rock Hudson, there was John Wayne, there was Liz Taylor. All of them are perished. But you don't hear about John Wayne, or Rock Hudson, or Liz Taylor. But you hear about Rosa Parks, you hear about Harriet Tubman, you hear about Martin Luther King, you understand? My thing is to say I want somebody to be parallel with me like John Brown. I want him to be remembered again for who he was and what he stood for. I want Peter Norman to be standing right next to me and be acknowledged for who he is. That Black History Museum in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. that Mr. Mr. Uh, Bunch came to me, told me he wanted to put these statues up. Fine, Mr. Bunch, that's a great thing. And then I looked up and I said, well, where's Mr. Norman? Well, we, Mr. Norman, he's a, a, a Mr. Bunch. If you don't put Mr. Norman up there, don't put John Carlos up there. It's a black history museum. I said, nah, man, this is about human rights. And he was one of the strongest human rights fighters I know. If you're not going to put him up there, don't put me up there. He's in that museum. But John Brown should be in that museum as well, standing next to, uh, to uh, Frederick Douglass. All those football players should be acknowledged for standing up for what was right, opposed to being in the shadows. And society sit back and allow the media and allow the powers to be to arrange certain things, to have you read the headlines and go by what the headlines say. And how do I know how effective headlines are? I went to see my father in the hospital in his dying bed in New York in 1969 after the Olympic Games. And my father looked at me and he said to me, he said, son, why did you do all those bad things? And I looked at my father and I said, daddy, what you talking about? He said, look in that drawer right there. It was the New York Times. That's when they said neighborhood bum, troublemaker. And I looked at that and I read the article and I looked at my father and I said, pop, do you know Harry Edwards? He said, no. I said, you know Stokely Carmichael? No. You know H. Rap Brown? No. What about Tommy Smith? No. I said, you know John Carlos? Oh, come on, son, you're my baby boy. I said, no, Pop. Do you know John Carlos? I said, because if you know John Carlos, the story they're writing about me is the same story they're writing about these individuals. Now, you don't know them, but you know me. Is that me that they're writing about? 
My old man broke down and started crying. I started crying. I'm holding him in my arms. And I'm thinking right then, if they can blow my father away with headlines, God help me for what the grassroots people would think that don't know me. Start realizing what life is all about for yourself. Don't let nobody dictate to you. That's like you say, well, I'm not going to go to the movie because the critic said it's a bad movie. How could he think for you? Okay? All right, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. John Carlos, everybody. <laughs> That was Dr. John Carlos and Dave Zirin. You can check out their book, The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World, at your local NYPL branch. The New York Public Library podcast is produced by Skylar Swenson with editorial support by Riker Schnorr and myself. Thanks for listening.